Good evening. Well, at last, the Sue Gray report. Well, when I say the Sue Gray report, she says herself in the report that it is not a meaningful report. And that, of course, is because of the intervention of Cressida Dick, the boss of the Met Police. As a result of all of this, the 18 parties that were under investigation by Sue Gray, 12 of them are now going to be investigated as criminal investigations by the Metropolitan Police. And therefore, this is not much more than an update. It's an update and it's something that is described as general findings. But there are one or two things that are said in this report that are relevant. Some of the behaviour surrounding these gatherings are difficult to justify. She also talks about failures of leadership and judgement by different parts of Number 10. She talks in this short report about excessive consumption of alcohol and it not being appropriate in a professional workplace. And also, really damningly, she says the leadership structures are fragmented and complicated, which means that Number 10, frankly, is a shambles. And she concludes, significant learning must be addressed immediately. Now, since that report, there's been a statement from Angela Rich Richardson, Conservative Member of Parliament, and she has said the following. Sue Gray's report, published today, clearly states that there were failings at Number 10 Downing Street that let us all down. The Prime Minister again apologised for those. I share the deep disappointment that it has taken so long to get to this stage when we could have had an early acknowledgement and apology. It also seems that though there are further questions which do not yet have answers to because of the Metropolitan Police investigation. I echo colleagues who called on number 10 when appropriate to release in full the details of the events considered by Sue Gray but not currently included in her report. And she goes on. And she has resigned. She's resigned as a PPS to Michael Gove. Uh, and that is the first government resignation that we've had. So, Sue Gray and so many MPs were saying that their decision, their final decision, as to whether they'd maintain support for Boris Johnson, whether they'd put letters in to the chairman of the 1922 committee, all of this hinged on the Sue Gray report. Well, Boris Johnson began the afternoon using a word he hasn't yet used. He's apologised before, but he's never used the word sorry. He began his response to the Sue Gray report in the House of Commons in a very calm and measured manner. Let's have a look. I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply didn't get right, and also sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. And it's no use saying that this or that was within the rules, and it's no use saying that people were working hard. This pandemic was hard for everyone. But, Mr Speaker, it isn't enough to say sorry. This is a moment when we must look at ourselves in the mirror and we must learn. And third, I will be saying more in the coming days about the steps we will take to improve the Number 10 operation and the work of the Cabinet Office, to strengthen Cabinet government and to improve the vital connection between Number 10 and Parliament. Mr Speaker, I get it. And I will fix it. So that was the beginning of the afternoon. It was calm. It was measured. And he did 
use the word sorry. But it soon became a very torrid afternoon for the Prime Minister. This is some of Sir Keir Starmer's initial response. By routinely breaking the rules he set, the Prime Minister took us all for fools. He held people sacrificing contempt. He showed himself unfit for office. His desperate denials since he was exposed have only made matters worse. Rather than come clean, every step of the way, he's insulted the public's intelligence. And now he's finally fallen back on his usual excuse. It's everybody's fault but his. Well, it was interesting. That was Keir Starmer. And he clearly rattled the Prime Minister because this was Boris responding immediately afterwards. Leader of the opposition, a former director of public prosecutions, Mr Speaker. He spent most of his time prosecuting journalists and failing to prosecute Jimmy Savile, as far as I can make out, Mr Speaker. He, Mr Speaker, chose to use, it, chose to use this moment... He used this moment, Mr Speaker, continually to prejudge a police inquiry. So that was Boris Johnson. What the hell it's got to do with Jimmy Savile, I really don't know. But interesting, that line from Boris Johnson, don't prejudge a police investigation. So for the last couple of months, literally, and it is two months, it's been wait for the Sue Gray report before you make your minds up. Now it's wait for the Metropolitan Police before you make your minds up. What Johnson is doing is kicking or trying to kick the can down the road. Now, the intervention that perhaps surprised me more than any other was the one that came from a former Prime Minister. I generally think, having watched Edward Heath sulk for years in the House of Commons, that it might be better if former Prime Ministers weren't actually there. But Theresa May has continued as an MP, and this was the question she put today. What the Gray report does show is that Number 10 Downing Street was not observing the regulations they had imposed on members of the public. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules or didn't understand what they meant and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to Number 10. Which was it? It's a very important question. I want to hear the answer, even if other people don't. Prime Minister. Uh, no, Mr Speaker, that is not what the uh, Grey Report says. Uh, it is not what the Grey Report says. Uh, but if she, I, 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 I suggest that she waits to see uh, the conclusion of the inquiry. Ouch. What a question Theresa May asked, and Boris Johnson really wasn't able to answer it. And by this stage of the proceedings, I could see watching the monitor, that there was very little enthusiasm for him on his own backbenches. Now, Ian Blackford, the SNP leader in Westminster, went one further than Theresa May. The public know this is a man they can no longer trust. He has been investigated by the police. He misled the House. He must now resign. Order. You'll have to withdraw that last comment. Mr Speaker, I gave the evidence of the 8th of December. Order, order. You're going to have to withdraw misled. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister has misled the House. So he was booted out, and I'm sure that won't do him any harm north of the border. Two things in the House of Commons that you cannot accuse your opponents of being. One is a liar and the other is being drunk. 
believe it or not, that is absolutely against House of Commons rules. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw David Davis, a very senior former cabinet minister, stand up and say to Johnson in the name of God, go. And today, Andrew Mitchell, who's held many senior positions over donkey's years within the Conservative Party, and as he rose to speak, I noticed he was sitting up at the back and sitting next to David Davis. So perhaps what came next didn't surprise me that much. I'm deeply concerned by these events and, and very concerned indeed by some of the things he has said from that dispatch box and has said to the British public and our constituents. When he kindly invited me to see him ten days ago, I told him that I thought he should think very carefully about what was now in the best interests of our country and of the Conservative Party. And I have to tell him he no longer enjoys my support. Well, uh, Mr Speaker, I, I must tell uh, respectfully uh, my right honourable friend, great though uh, the admiration uh, is that I have of him, I, I simply think that he's uh, mistaken in his views and uh, I, I urge him, to, I urge him to, to reconsider upon full consideration of the, of the inquiry. Well, it was not a great afternoon for Boris Johnson. It was not a great performance from Boris Johnson. And it's a big distraction and it's bad for our country. Try this for size. The Prime Minister had a scheduled phone call with Vladimir Putin today. But because of what was happening in the House of Commons, the request was made to Putin's office to delay the call and Putin said he couldn't do it. So the conversation, the conversation with the Russian president didn't happen because of this ongoing row. I want to ask you, what did you think of today's proceedings? Let me know. Farage at GBNews.uk. I thought for the Prime Minister it was a disaster. I think it is inevitable that he will go. It's only a matter of time. Had he confessed earlier to things that had gone wrong, I think there might have been a way out. Now, I don't. Well, joining me now in Downing Street is Darren McCaffrey, GB News' political editor. Darren, it was a pretty tough afternoon, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. There was a sense, I think, in many regards, uh, Nigel, that Sue Gray's preliminary report, or update as it was branded, was actually more critical of the government than many had envisaged. As you say, talking there about uh, leadership, about many of these events being simply unjustifiable, and frankly about the booze culture inside uh, Number 10. And the Prime Minister, of course, tried to address that with the restructuring and this new office of the Prime Minister, which is due to be announced in the coming days. But I think what compounded the kind of critical element of the Sue Gray report, the more critical element than people had thought, uh, was then that the Prime Minister in some way seemed to make things worse in the Commons, that he uh, didn't get the tone necessarily right at one stage, as you say, uh, throwing up that internet allegation, if you want to call it, against Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile that's without foundation, at one stage also accusing the Labour front bench of uh, taking uh, drugs. It just didn't feel that he was kind of well, getting I mean, the tone the uh, right to a large degree. Nice and I think what is also very difficult for the Prime Minister is not just what's happened today and the severity of the reaction from his own backbenchers uh, today, and we saw that from people like Andrew Mitchell, is that this is the slim down, the watered down version, if you like of Sue Gray's report. Some of the most serious allegations are yet to really properly be addressed because they're currently in the hands of the Metropolitan Police, who this afternoon Nigel reveals that they've got over 300 photos that have been supplied to them and that they're going through from Sue Gray. Quite incredible stuff. Tonight, uh, Boris Johnson 
is trying in some ways to strike a different tone away from the Commons Chamber. He's still in Parliament addressing the full parliamentary party in a packed room in uh, Parliament. He's saying that he nearly died of this pandemic and saying that uh, he is contrite and acknowledges the errors that have been made. Darren, it's going to be a very busy week, I think. We'll be talking to you again tomorrow. Thank you very much indeed. Well, so much for Westminster. What's happening out there in the country? Because that matters more. Well, joining me now is Bradley Harris, GB News, northwest of England reporter, who is at the Musketeer pub in Lee, Lancashire. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting to get the thoughts of people here in Lee. Of course, if you remember, in 2019, the last general election, James Grundy, the MP, won the seat from the current mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. Many people here voted Conservative for the first time. And I'm here in the Musketeer pub. It's been going 12 years under the reign of landlady Maureen. And I've come to find out what people think about this explosive news today. Boris Johnson, parties, Sue Gray. Maureen, what's your reaction? It's all right for him to party. But when I have a floor drawn and a big hole in my floor, I get the police sent to me and get, try, get accused of having parties in my pub when we was having a floor drawn. All the pubs are losing out now. It's, it's hard to get it back. We've lost two years of money and everything, and it's just so hard to, to do it now. I don't know how we're going to get on. I've not got a clue. Well, Maureen, you've been reading uh, the newspapers today, yeah. but the latest is that Boris actually said the word sorry. Is that enough for you, do you think? Is it heck? How can tell you help us out money-wise and everything to put our business back on the road again? It's not going to help at all. He, need, he needs to give us some tax cuts or do something and help everybody out, give us back what we've lost. Well, Maureen, it's really good to hear your thoughts. I'll let you keep manning uh, the pub here, the Musketeer, brilliant pub here in Lee. Uh, one of uh, the punters that have come uh, to the pub on a Monday night. You're enjoying a drink. And I'm coming here to chat to you about the biggest news story. There's lots of other stories happening, but this is the one that most people in Lee are talking about. Boris Johnson. Right. Tell me, what are your thoughts? Do you think he is now a good Prime Minister for you? I think Boris Johnson... I think, I think Conservatives should never got into Lee. Lee's always been a Labour, a Labour place, and I think it should have been stayed that way. Boris has done a job, and he had to do what he had to do, but I think it's all got out of contents, and I think, I think it should just be left, left to lie now. Mm. Um, is here, and it's here to stay. It's like the new flu. And I, I just think, as, like Maureen, has lost a lot of business. What I want to say, Maggie, is that uh, Boris said that he has had some successes as Prime Minister. Uh, the vaccine programme, the best in Europe, he said. Do you think he has had some successes? And actually, this is only a small kind of problem Can for I Prime Minister. Can I just say something? Mm. And I've known relatives of my own, my brother-in-law, for instance, or whoever, the, our Queen, really, lost her husband and had to mourn her husband on her own at funeral. My, my brother-in-law lost his mum and three people went to the funeral. That's not right, neither, when he's partying. Enough said. Uh, a lot of people uh, in this town voted for the Prime Minister, for the Conservative Party. Would you vote for him again? I never voted him for any... I, won't vote, I, I would not vote for nobody on Labour. I would vote up with Labour. My parents always worked. I work, so Labour for me forever. 
And what do you want to see from the Prime Minister? Knowing what's happened now from the Sue Gray report, we're still waiting to hear more findings from that as the Met Police are investigating. I think Boris should go on out, right, quit while he's ahead, and let someone else try to recover a country, but I will support whatever is in action. Well, Maggie, really good to hear your thoughts. I'll let you two enjoy your Thank drink. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, hearing the thoughts of people in Lee. I was in Lee Market, which is just a stone's throw away from the Musketeer pub where I am now. Uh, interesting to hear their thoughts as well. There was a butcher's uh, there that was telling me that actually, do you know what, the Prime Minister, for anybody in that seat, it would have been a difficult job. And actually, we've just got to look to the future now and get on with the job. Those are the words from the Prime Minister as well. But of course, we've still got to find out more from that investigation. So we'll have to wait and see in the days. We will. Bradley, thank you very much indeed. And we'll see you on Thursday because this show, Farage at Large, is coming to Blackpool on Thursday evening. Thank you, Bradley Harris, for that report. And that's the point I keep making. It's the question of trust out in the country. That's what really matters. Now, on Thursday on this show, we had an exclusive. We had the doctor on who was busy with seven of his colleagues launching a legal action against the government to end the NHS vaccine mandate. That's the means by which nearly 100,000 nurses, doctors and those working in the NHS would lose their jobs on the 1st of April. And it looks like there may have been a bit of a victory. So what did you make of the Sue Gray report and Boris Johnson's afternoon in the House of Commons? John says, damaging for an update. What will the report say? Well, that's the point, isn't it? There's worse to come. And as Adam hinted, the police already have 300 photographs that have been handed to them of various parties and 500 reports. So there is much worse to come of that, I am certain. Adam says, time to move on. This is a story within a story and taking up far too much bandwidth. You're right, Adam, it's taking up so much bandwidth that the Prime Minister didn't speak to Vladimir Putin today. You're right. One viewer says, when do we get the report into Labour MPs and Chinese funding? I get it. And the fact the Barry Gardner affair has gone as quiet as it has, I find quite extraordinary. Alf says, it doesn't say Boris broke rules. The report was more to do with poor standards like alcohol during the working hour which I think is a good idea. <laughs> Richard says, report, it's more like a few bullet points jotting down on a post-it note. Well, you know, all ranges of opinion. Now, Sajid Javid, this afternoon, has responded. Remember, Dr Steve James was here in the studio with me on Thursday, launching a judicial review against the government. I have been saying repeatedly now, for weeks on this show... I think the vaccine mandate is absolute madness. I think after what happened, when nearly 40,000 people have left the care sector, to lose up to 100,000 people from a national health service because they've not had the vaccine would be madness, particularly if they're regularly tested. Sajid Javid, the health secretary, responded in the last hour like this. We have to consider the impact on the workforce in NHS and social care settings especially at a time when we already have a shortage of workers and near full employment across the economy. 
We have to consider the impact on the care and the health service of lots of people leaving. Yes, indeed, we do. Well, joining me again, I'm pleased to say, is Dr. Steve James, critical care consultant at King's College Hospital. Steve, welcome back to the programme. I did say to you the other evening, I thought this one was winnable. It's looking pretty good, isn't it? It's looking pretty good. So uh, the first statement that Sajid Javid made today was a little confusing for many of us. But uh, after a good question from Esther McVeigh, uh, he clarified that both the mandate for the care home workers, as well as the mandate being put into place for healthcare workers, that's NHS and the private sector, uh, were going to be revoked. So none of those dates, February the 3rd or April the 1st, matter now. They're still going to go out for a consultation process. I think that's a bit of formality and a bit of, you know, covering up what's gone on, but it stopped. So, Steve James, you plucked up courage to take on the health secretary when he visited King's. Um, and you did say to me off air that your heart was a bit, you know, in your mouth when you were doing it. It was a nervous moment. Do you think they were scared of your judicial review? I don't know. I don't think they wanted to go through the judicial re review process because I think they still want to be able to use uh, mandatory vaccines in one area or another. Um, and I think there's concern that they're going to link that to uh, talk of a, a social ID system and these uh, other areas of concern for, for the freedoms of people in this country. Um, so there's a much, much wider picture, which we haven't really got to yet because we've been trying to work to uh, protect 100,000 people's uh, livelihoods. Yeah, I mean, there are lots of ways in which government seeks to monitor us, to control us, to tell us what to do, to take away our liberties. But, Steve, this actually looks to me like the first real victory in terms of freedom of choice against the big state and overweening government. How are your colleagues taking this news? Obviously, those that are on your side will be delighted with the statement we've heard this evening. Are there others in the health service who are angry at you? I haven't had anyone be angry towards me um, so far, but it's only been a matter of uh, an hour or so since the, the information has been released. You know, in the survey conducted by the government uh, before they put out the, the vaccine mandate, the majority of staff in the NHS um, were against uh, the idea of a mandatory vaccination. And I spoke to a uh, Sky News correspondent earlier today who told me that they've been trying to speak to senior doctors who've been um, promoting the vaccine mandate, and none of them wanted to say that actually they felt a, a mandatory vaccination was a good thing. And finally, Steve James, how does it feel in the space of a few weeks to have gone from being a critical care consultant at King's, doing his job, to being a political campaigner and winning what looks like a big, big victory? You know, I, I've been honoured to uh, join some fantastic people, uh, particularly those from the Together Declaration those from NHS 100K, and to, you know, come out. You know, I, I've uh, had a chance to come on the pitch quite late uh, and score a goal, uh, so to speak. But there's, there's been a huge um, uh, setup from beforehand, uh, the efforts made by many. Someone else could have been in my position. Uh, a catalyst uh, was needed. Uh, I happened to be at the right place. Um, uh, but... The groundwork has is, is, is been done by many yeah. and the action done by many. Yeah, no, NHS 100,000 together, they've done a great campaign 
And maybe you did come on the pitch late, but I tell you what, Steve, you put the ball firmly in the back of the net and well done you. Thank you. Thanks, Nigel. And I do mean that. I think, that, I think this is quite a big moment, uh, you know, because it's all been one-way traffic. Ever since this pandemic started, government getting bigger and bigger and bigger and making decisions that we should be making for ourselves. This is the beginning of a big, big victory. And I hope a broader and wider fight back. Well, talking of fight backs, some pretty extraordinary scenes in Canada over the course of the last few days. Truckers, truckers for freedom of choice have been driving a huge convoy through Canada. It's all to do with the same issue. It's all to do about vaccine mandates, but it's also to do about government restrictions on people's lives. Um, This convoy of trucks has converged on Ottawa um, and, uh, frankly, uh, made most of Ottawa pretty much a no-go zone. And they've been greeted, despite the bitter Canadian winter, all along the route, they've been greeted by very large numbers of people uh, lining uh, the highways and the freeways. And it's really interesting. You know, up until now, in virtually every country in the West, the government has been able to do pretty much what it wants with very, very little fight back. Yeah, we've had demonstrations in Trafalgar Square. We've had marches. We've seen similar across the rest of Europe. But what is happening in Canada is, I think, very significant. Now, there's one aspect to this which I'm not going to gloat about, and that is that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and his family were moved on Saturday from their official residence in Ottawa to an undisclosed location. Now, I don't actually take any joy in that. I don't like mob rule. I don't like any threat of violence, though there's been no suggestion, by the way, that any violence has been used by this trucker's blockade. Uh, But what I do like is the fact that people are beginning to stand up for their choice, for their liberties, for their freedom. And I think we're going to see a lot, lot more of it. The worm has turned. Now, today is the 31st of January. And it's a day that matters one hell of a lot to me. Because it's the day... Well, the 23rd of June 2016 was a big day for me. That was the day of the referendum, the day of the vote to leave. But, of course, because of all the political machinations, the dishonesty by so many in Westminster, the attempt to make sure that Brexit didn't happen, it took a very, very long time. But it was on the 31st of January, two years ago today, and I'd given the night before my last speech in the European Parliament and finally caught Eurostar home. But that was the moment at 11pm we were leaving the European Union. And so there we were. And I helped organise a party with Richard Tice, my colleague. We had a party there. And there's the countdown. And there's the magic moment. We're out. Uh, There was a huge crowd of people. It was very jolly. It was great fun. Uh, A massive cross-section of people were up on stage from all political views, all political parties, all backgrounds. It was a Brexit celebration. It was an amazing moment. The BBC didn't see fit to cover it, but that tells you really quite a lot. And yes, we can argue, we can argue two years on about how Brexit's been delivered. Yes, we got Brexit done. We now need to get Brexit done properly. And today, the government, Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, has announced today a Brexit Freedoms Bill. 
a new piece of legislation that will make it much easier for us to be able to get rid or to simplify EU law, which was simply transposed into British law for nearly half a century. Why today? This should have happened on the first day Boris Johnson got into government. And if you add that to the dreadful fisheries deal that we've done, not just dreadful for the industry, but dreadful environmentally for what's going on in our seas, if you add to that the fact that Northern Ireland has been cut off, you realise, actually, there is a lot more still needs to be done for us to take full advantage of Brexit. And I heard a government minister this morning on one of the radio stations saying, we're not going to cut the 5% VAT on fuel bills, but we do now have the freedom to do so. Isn't that good? We've got the freedom to cut the 5%. We've got the freedom now to properly control our borders. It's about time the Conservative government started using those powers and giving us the Brexit benefits that we all deserve. Some more thoughts on Sue Gray and Boris Johnson. Colin says, a distraction from the real issue. Lockdowns were pointless and Boris knew it. Well, that's one argument, isn't it? One argument is the rules were nuts and lots of us out there in the real world broke them, but an awful lot didn't break them. And I return to the point I've made over and over again. Lawmakers cannot, must not ever be lawbreakers. It's just as simple as that. Keith says, the media seem intent on disposing with Boris. Could it be they are still fighting Brexit? Perhaps they missed the EU subsidies. <laughs> well, Lord Heseltine, 84-year-old Lord Heseltine, I mean, you can't switch on the BBC or turn the radio on without he hearing Heser saying that it's time for a rethink. He's become the lead rejoiner. But I can promise you, as Colin Brazier said the other week on the show, they're rather like Japanese soldiers discovered in the jungle in 1970 who still thought they were fighting World War II. It finished long ago and Brexit finished long ago. And Boris's problem, actually, isn't just party gate. It's the fact that he's not governing as a Conservative. He's putting up taxes. He's obsessed with a net zero policy. And I could go on and on. He's much more of a social democrat than the Conservative that people gave an 80-seat majority to just two years back. Lance says, any Tory MP who supports Boris over his party denials has no better morals than him. Leadership is about trust and setting examples. Boris is not fit for continuing as our Prime Minister. And Roger says, what does Roger say? When is Parliament going to grow up and move on? Parties, drinking, drug taking. Well, hang on a sec, that's alleged drug taking. It seems to me that not only are all parties guilty of the same, but so are a significant number of the public, members of the public. Yeah, look, we know, we know there are lots of members of the public that break the law, but they're not the ones making the law. And finally, Lester says, what a total, utter waste of time and taxpayers' money. Well, whichever side of the argument you're from, it is becoming a total distraction from the ability of this government, not just to run this country, but to deal with international affairs. I'll say it one more time, and the last time this evening, a very important phone call between Boris Johnson, and don't forget we're the number two country in NATO, a very important phone call between him and Vladimir Putin was scheduled today, and it had to be cancelled because of what was going on in the House of Commons. This is 
a dreadful, dreadful distraction. In a moment, to get a political view, too, on what's happened today, but indeed what's happened in politics over the course of the last 40 years, and maybe we'll even touch on the drink culture, I'm going to be joined by Fleet Street's longest surviving political editor, Nigel Nelson. Well, I'll bet the pubs in Westminster are absolutely packed tonight. And indeed, the GB News pub is open and I'm joined by Nigel Nelson. Nigel, welcome to... Nice to see you. (laughs) Now, politics is a rough, dirty old game. But political journalism is not exactly straightforward either, is it? (laughs) No. And you have been editing for... It's getting on 40 years, isn't it? Well, I started in 1986 when uh, Margaret Thatcher was still Prime Minister. Yep. Uh, so working them through, I sort of had Thatcher, Major, uh, Blair, Brown, Cameron, May, and we're now on number seven. Yeah. And with the mirror all the way through? Yeah, I started with the Sunday People. Um, yep. So I was political editor of that one. And then about five years ago, we decided to, to amalgamate the staffs of the paper. So I took over the Sunday, Sunday Mirror as well. So I'm political editor of both. Yes. So they've decided to actually work me twice as hard. Well, you seem to be thriving on it because you seem to enjoy it. And obviously, you come at your politics much more from a, you know, a Labour Party mm. perspective, and, and you always have done. Um, how good a PM was Blair? Um, I think he would have been the best PM... Uh, of the last 50 years, had it not been for Iraq. Um, so I think that he was by far the most consummate politician we produced for uh, a long time, probably since sort of someone like Clem Attlee for the things that, that he yeah. achieved. And everything got lost by... I mean, it happens with, with most prime ministers. They make some catastrophic mistake, and that's the end of it. In Blair's case, it actually took away his legacy. Um, there was no question that Iraq was um, oh. a, a, a huge error... I understand why he did it. Um, do you? I, yeah, I do, because I think that the way, or I understand the way he saw it anyway, that his feeling at the time was um, the most important thing for Britain was the alliance with America. And so, in a sense, what he was doing uh, was doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. So um, he was trying to uh, stick close to Bush. He made a promise to Bush, which he should never have made. No. And then he was scuttling around afterwards trying to get international support that Bush never never cared about. And so we now know there were no, no WMD. Uh, he really didn't have the evidence at the time to justify that war. And I think that that has ruined his legacy. Mm. So Blair, having been incredibly popular, now is astonishingly toxic. Yeah. No, he really is. Because when you started... For younger viewers, this is really hard to take in. But when you started, television was, I think, three channels. Yeah. <laughs> Channel 4 hadn't been invented, I think, by then. Uh, there was no internet. Nope. And Much easier. <laughs> and, but newspapers. I mean, so, so it's difficult for younger people to understand just how powerful and how big the newspaper industry was. Yeah, I don't think that we were so much powerful as influential. I always think that we didn't actually have power as such. Um, it was a simpler way of dealing with politics, and I think simpler for politicians as well as for journalists. So, I mean, the way it worked in those days is you had TV and radio, you had newspapers, yep. and you then had a kind of um, a political timeline that went through that. So, obviously, the daily news would appear in the daily papers. I worked for Sunday papers. The way the system used to work in the 
those days was that they would um, talk to us about ideas they had. So in a sense, uh, it would be a cabinet minister would, um, would, would call you in and say, I've got this great idea. You can't have any of this on the record, but you can have the story. What would then happen is they produce a policy... And that is the modern-day consultation. Um, In those days, the policy would would go out into the paper. Their fingerprints weren't on it. As a result, they could find out how it would play with the public, how it would play with experts. People would come back to them and say, that might work if you tweak this. Other people would come back and say, it'll never work. And they would scrap it. And so they had no fingerprints on it themselves, which meant it was and much easier. And they trusted you that much? Did they? Yes, yes. I mean, the whole thing is that, that the, the lobby system in those days was secretive in the sense these meetings never officially happened. And uh, you could argue that that is not transparency. Well, it certainly wasn't. I would argue that um, it actually made for really good governance because uh, a policy didn't have to be announced by a politician and then they had to stick with it what they could do is they could try something out and see if it worked. So was the relationship between journalists and politicians closer then? Um, yeah, I think it was. I think that the... Um, as, you, as, as you say, both sides have to trust each other in a situation like that. Mm. And so my view about when it, whenever I go to work... Uh, it, this applies now to an extent. The most important tool I carry with me to work is trust. Um, I can... Uh, politicians are fairly grown up for the most part. I can slag really? them off... Well, they are, they are rather. I can slag them off. I mean, you've written... Look, I've, I mean, done, you've, I've done it to you. I mean, you've written about me. Exactly. You've written about me many years. times. Yeah. And I've... What have I said about you on Sunday mornings? I can't remember. Well, you're probably something un- unpleasant. <laughs> but, um, but either way, the point is that... It, that but isn't it a question of whether it's fair criticism or unfair criticism? Yes, I think it is that. And so sometimes I've made mistakes and fallen out with politicians as a result of it. But what it means is if I write a piece on Sunday, I've got to go back to the House of Commons and look that person in the eye yeah. uh, the, the, the following week. And so the important thing is that they respect the, where, where I'm coming from. They don't have to agree with it. Um, they do object, and rightly so, if I've made a mistake, if it's been criticism that they do feel is unfair, um, or if any way they thought it might be underhand. So it is the, the, it is the trust thing which I think is the most important thing for a political mm. journalist. Because, I mean, let's face it, elements of our newspaper industry did go too far, way, way too far. I don't, I don't know what you think, but I, I kind of thought Leveson actually worked quite well, and I kind of think that the relationship now between the media and pub, not just politicians but public figures is a much more reasonable relationship. You know, the idea that you could use a, um, you know, a camera with a long lens take a photograph of somebody in their private property and publish it. I mean, that's what was happening, wasn't it? It it was outrageous. Yeah, there were a lot of things going on there. I think that Leveson was a great wake-up call for us. Um, Frankly, I was was absolutely shocked about the whole thing. Um, I had been... What, the phone hacking? Yeah, completely. That... I had no idea. Do you, mean that, do you mean that the Mirror Group never did this? No, no, no. The Mirror Group did do it. That, that is the well, point. That was the thing that actually shocked me right. uh, hugely. Um, and we're paying out a lot of compensation yeah. on the basis of that. I knew nothing about it when it was going on, and the majority of staff didn't know anything about it. Had I been asked to do it, I would have refused. I don't think I knew even in those days it was against the law. I'd have refused on ethical grounds and said, this is just not on. Um, But it became a kind of, I just can't believe this sort of thing was going on. I had a similar feeling about the MPs' expenses scandal. Mm. I was completely shocked how people who were 
um, friends of mine as, as politicians the kind of things they've been claiming for. I just thought, how could you do this? And so Leveson, in a sense, was the same kind of shock um, mm. for my industry mm. as it was, if you like, for politics I think when, it, when I saw that happen. I think it did a lot of good. I think it did get that balance back to perhaps where we needed it to be. Now, when you started, I mean, it must have been just a big boys' club, really. I mean, the drink. I mean, we, there were a few we, girls there, but we, not, not we, many. There weren't indeed. many in those days. Not many, no, no. You know, and there's still not enough. There's still not, not enough enough women um, in political journalism, and that needs to needs to be addressed. And one of the, I think one of the difficulties is it is a twenty four seven job. Now it really is. Well, it, it, it now news is twenty four seven. But even even looking back then. Um, you're always kind of on duty, you're always thinking about it, um, and it's very difficult to switch off. Obviously, if, if you are a mother with young children, that makes it more difficult unless you've got a lot of help from your partner. Mm-hmm. Now I think that we, we are getting, getting the balance better and more women are coming into the, into the business. And it, it, it is good. It, it, has done, it has done political journalism a lot of good to have more women there. And a tough old day for the Prime Minister. And one of the things that Sue Gray did, I mean, it's a pretty flimsy report, but one of the things she did say was the drink culture inside Number 10. I would think your early days of Fleet Street. I mean, that was, I mean, people drank all day, didn't they? Yes, they did. I mean, that, uh, um, and now you, you, you look back on it and think, how on earth did we get away with that? How was that possible? Um, yeah, we did our jobs. I'm not quite sure how. Yeah. And the same thing when I first went into the House of Commons. I mean, the drink culture in the House of Commons uh, was absolutely astonishing. I mean, at night time, MPs had to be propped up by a couple of others to get them through the voting lobby. And you sort of thought, this is the way democracy works. This is, this is most peculiar. I think that probably in society as a whole, the drink culture has changed. People just don't drink the way that they, they used to. And so that applies both to journalism and to politics. So are we getting overexcited about Boris's parties? No, um, because I think we're still back to that, that issue about uh, his judgment, um, the feeling that he didn't really care about things. We're now seeing the kind of chaos that, that reigns in Downing Street all of which goes to the character of the Prime Minister. And I think the public have a right to know what kind of person is actually leading them. Politicians like to say, oh, no, what people care about is policy. No, they don't. They care about personalities. Mm. And they want to know that the, the leader they have got is actually acting all the way through in their best interest. And I think what the parties show is either he didn't care... Um, or, as Theresa May said today, uh, it was he didn't know. Quite a moment, wasn't it? I think that you, you can't imagine these things happening under someone yeah. like Theresa May. Yeah. Um, but it is this kind of chaos around him, and that, to my mind, is it makes him unqualified no, I, to be Prime Minister. I, I, the trust issue, I think, is... I mean, I had Trevor Kavanagh sitting there not, not long ago. You know, like you, veteran political journalist, different side of the divide, mm. uh, but he was very much of that... Very, very, very similar opinion. He may not survive... But you said personality. Yeah. Sakir Starmer, distinguished record, you know, rose up through the ranks of the legal profession. He's now leading a Labour Party and a united Labour Party, which... It is indeed. It's almost yeah. hard to believe. <laughs> I didn't think it was possible. Um, he's got no personality, has he? Well, he has. I mean, that's the, and I wish well, I haven't more, spotted it. Well, I wish more of it would come out. You ought to, you ought to get him doing one of these things. Well, we'll ask him, of course. Um, uh, but it, uh, that he is very personable. Um, he's great fun to be with. He is very bright. Um, and the one thing that he actually needs is a bit more oomph. 
a bit more, a uh, bit less risk averse, getting out there, talking to people. Um, and I think all that will come. But obviously, the election now is probably only two years away. So really, it's something but to get on clear? with. I mean, he's a social democrat more than a socialist. I'd have said so that that would be my, my impression of him. Yeah, that he, yes, a social democrat it's funny, is probably... isn't it? Because prior to Brexit, they'd all become social democrats. Yeah. Brexit gave us genuine divides. Corbyn arrived. We had real choices in politics. Mm. And we're now all going back to being social democrats again. Yes, I think that the Corbyn era, the Corbyn era was interesting. That, um, first of all... Corbynomics has actually been adopted by Rishi Sunak. I, I can't believe it. I know, um, I that's know, exactly I know. what... I mean, if it had John McDonald been Chancellor, yeah. that's the kind of money oh, he would and, spend. Yeah, and, of course, price caps and spending and taxes. I, I just don't get it. But I did think that with, that with um, Jeremy Corbyn, it was an interesting experiment with the voters. Um, the last time socialism, in the sense of that kind of socialism, mm. had been tried was, was back in 1983 with Michael Foote. Um, the voters rejected that... I think it was really. I think it was quite important to, to give it another chance and see what happened. Now, again, the voters rejected it. I don't think this country is ready for that kind of socialism. I mean, what Jeremy used to tell me was what he planned was a a socialist British revolution. So that was always the kind of plan there. The voters said no, and now, that's, that's the beauty of democracy. No, they did. No, they did. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, you're a regular here on GB News and, and that's great. And despite some of the rubbish written about us, there is all ranges of opinion. You know, welcome here on this station. It's great to have you coming in so regularly and doing things. But when you go home, you know, with your convictions and your belief to Claire, Conservative <laughs> councillor, yep. and on the right of the Conservative Party on some issues. I mean, how, how does a marriage work like well, that? Well, it, it, it works because, um, <laughs> probably because we're both political professionals. Um, we've never fallen out over politics. And so we do talk about it all the time, uh, and particularly during the Brexit days. I was yeah, a Remainer. I know you were. She was a Brexiteer. Yeah. Um, and in, in some senses, that having that conversation, it is a conversation rather than an argument, you actually learn things. So, for instance, um, Claire has, has, has um, made me rethink about votes at 16 on the yeah. basis of what would I think about 16-year-olds okay. being in adult prisons. So it's a civilised household? Absolutely. How many more years have you got in journalism, Nigel? Uh, I'm not gonna, I don't intend to pack up. Very I'm going, off, going on for good. On that note, <laughs> thank you for joining me on Talking Pies. <laughs> sure. We're coming towards the end of the show, but as ever, there's always time, is there not, for Barrage the Farage, where you send your questions in and I do not get prior sight of them. So here goes. Alan says, will this ongoing saga be Boris's swan song or an unfinished symphony? I think he'll be gone by the summer. Nigel, what do you make of it? I think he'll be gone as well. There we are, you see. They obviously left and right can agree on things. It just goes to show. Robbie, Robbie asks, should Dominic Cummings be knighted in the next honours list? I think his behaviour has been absolutely disgraceful. Uh, I think right from the Barnard Castle moment, I think he's been awful. Let's move on. Tracy asks, as more and more hard-working families face soaring bills, what would be your best money-saving tip for us, Nigel? Well, the first thing I would do is to get rid of green subsidies for the wind energy sector, which, when the wind doesn't blow, doesn't work anyway. There's a start. Let's get household bills on things like fuel down, and we can do it. Equally, we can use Brexit 
and the reduction of tariffs to make goods from the rest of the world cheaper too. Robert asks, with war in Europe on the horizon, do you think it is a good time to change Prime Minister? That is a good question, isn't it? It is a good question, but we did it once before during the Second World War when we changed Neville Chamberlain for someone we thought would fight it better, Winston Churchill. And then we changed again, didn't we? Because, because of course, you know, actually, actually, when Churchill left office, there was still the Far East conflict going on. That's right, yes. So, you know, yeah. Um, right, we've got time for a couple more, I think. Julian asks, if you were Boris, not much chance of that, what would you do now? Well, I'd have one of these, I think. <laughs> um, I, look, you know, I've said it, I've said it again and again and again on this programme. Boris Johnson is a cheerleader. He's a brilliant cheerleader. He's great at going around and cheering everybody up but he's not a leader, and I think that's been proved over the course of the last couple of years. He got Brexit done, he got the vaccine rollout, great achievements, but I'm afraid the end of the road is very, very close.